to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt, legacy code, and on this episode, performance. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Nate Brickelpeck, who is the author of The Complete Guide to Rails Performance and owner of SpeedShop, a Ruby on Rails performance consultancy. Nate Berkopek, it's a pleasure having you on Maintainable. Hey, thanks. Happy to be here. So I'm really excited to dive into the weeds with you to talk about performance of software. But before we dive into that, what do you believe are common characteristics of healthy and maintainable software? Well, I think probably the number one thing for me is that you can't optimize and you can't maintain what you don't understand. We under-prioritize how understandable or perhaps simple our tech stacks should be so that we can maintain and optimize them over time. So like I encounter a lot of, so I, I mean, I obviously work mostly in performance. So, you know, I encounter a lot of people that just don't even know what's going on in their application. Like they have no idea what happens over the course of a request because there's so much stuff going on in the app that they don't have even a mental model of what's happening. So having an application that's easy to understand that you actually can figure out what's going on is the first step to actually being able to optimize it because you can't optimize anything that you don't understand. And I, I would easily transitive property that over to maintainability. I can't see how you could maintain something that you don't understand. I mean, that's like the step one of test-driven refactoring, right? Like that, why you put a test around something is so you can understand what it does. So that's what the test does. And then you can go and refactor, right? So the test is the act of understanding. It's proving that you understand. So that would be my big number one characteristic. You have to understand it. And then there's a couple, a lot of things that, you know, are like corollaries of that, right? Like it should be simple. It should be not too abstracted, just abstracted enough to get the job done and like all kinds of stuff that I think can come along with that. When you're working as a consultant coming into different companies and they've got some performance problems they are or maybe are not aware of, what's your typical process for that? I think the number one thing is you have to start with what's happening today in production. So... People, I think, come to me sometimes and they get hung up on a couple of things. They get hung up on what they think is going wrong, which is just like pulled out of thin air, really. Like if you kind of dig into the reasons why they think you should look at thing X or thing Y, it's just because like they think that's an expensive operation. They think that that's something that's slow. But then you go and look at the production metrics and maybe it's not as bad as they thought. Or maybe it's like some other thing that was like totally a tire fire that we need to go fix, right? The production metrics are my source of truth. So New Relic, Scout are the popular ones in the Ruby community. There's different ones for other languages. But whatever that production monitoring solution is, is where I start. And you know, I've got a whole bunch of things that I know, like, oh, like this number is bad, this number is bad. And I kind of use that experience to, to figure out, you know, the bands, the healthy bands of of numbers that people should be in. But you know, you gotta start with what's actually happening for real with your code and prod, not what you think is happening or what's happening in development. That's another frequent problem where like something's fast on your machine, right? Like that's that's the classic, oh, it's fast, it works on my machine, it's fast on my machine, right? But like in your development machine, you've got 10 rows in the user table, and then in production you've got a million. So that's a big difference, and that can really impact the performance of something like, you know, user dot all in Rails or user dot lookup, you know, look up all the users. Like that's going to perform very differently, right? So, um, you know, I I frequently have to bring people into the production metrics and like show them how to read them and like, you know, oh, this shows that that thing that you thought was true actually isn't. So that's where I have to start. 
let's take a few minutes to kind of dive into the the weeds a little bit with the Ruby on Rails world and ecosystem specifically. So first of all, maybe a little bit of background on you. How did you find your way into focusing on performance within Ruby on Rails applications as a focus in your career? Ravi, the answer is Turbolinx. <laughs> so in the summer of either 2014 or 2015, I can't remember, I gave a conference talk about Turbolinx. I was a new freelancer. I think I've been freelancing for like two months. I gave a conference talk about why I thought Turbolinx was awesome and like people weren't paying attention to it enough. Then I turned that into a blog article. And when I turned that into a blog, DHH retweeted it and it like blew up. So I was like, whoa, wait a minute. A, I can like write and people will like it. B, people like it enough that DHH retweets it and like I'm I'm on to something here. So I just kept writing about it and I kept writing about Rails performance and it kept doing really well. You know, I was like, all right, this is a niche, like I can dig in here. And so that's how I got into it. And I really like performance work. Like unlike user stories, where like user stories, you can ship something and maybe no one likes it. <laughs> or like maybe it's like no one uses it or it's like lame. And with performance, nobody wishes their application was slower. So you made it better. Like maybe no one will use that speed that much. Like maybe it's only used like once in a blue moon, but like that person will really like it. So it's this kind of like objectively better. You can like measure how much better it is that I love. So I, I, I love the definiteness of it, I guess. I can relate to that as also working in an environment where working on Ruby on Rails applications and or just any software for that matter. Just I'm not a greenfield project person personally. I'm paralyzed looking at like a user story and like, how am I going to build this? And like, how do I, I'm more interested in fixing bugs personally, making things faster, you know, making things more secure, things that I could check off a box and see this is objectively faster. Like you can see, I'm able to communicate that the clients love hearing those kind of stories, even when they're not asking about it. Like we were able to make the such and such, you know, 12% faster this week. I think that's cool to like be able to admit that like, oh, I'm into that maintenance legacy stuff more than I am into Greenfield. Like, So Wikipedia has this concept of, I don't know if they call it gardening or gnomes now, but like there's these editors that they call gnomes. And like gnomes are just like people that fix spelling mistakes, like check if there's references. And like they're the kind of editors that don't write the new article, but will like fix up the existing articles to make them better. And I'm totally that kind of person too. Like you look at my GitHub page, like my open source sources, like the repos that I actually own, none of them are very popular. But like I maintain Puma, which is like probably one of the biggest and most popular Ruby libraries outside of Rails, probably. So I feel totally the same way. Like there's something about that that just clicks for me. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I came across an article and I think it was there's a company called Corgi Bytes and they have a podcast called Legacy Code Rocks. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not, but they had an article about like they were calling themselves menders, not makers. And I'm like, that's exactly what I am. I also like digging into existing things and trying to make sense of how things someone else might have put together something and try to come up with my own reasons and pretend I'm like maybe a little bit of an anthropologist or something. But back to Ruby on Rails. So since Ruby on Rails was first released, it has been kind of widely considered a slower platform in terms of processing time, like on the CPU level. And the counter to that for a long time was, well, it's quicker to write software with Ruby on Rails. And two, it's cheaper to throw hardware at the problem. Now that Rails has been around for about 15 years, do you believe that Ruby and or Rails is still slow? The question is like, slow how? Where does that come from, right? Really what it comes from is it's slower. It's slower 
than some of the other solutions that are available, right? So like, you know, you write the same code in the same hello world in Rails versus on Node, like the Node one's going to be faster, like probably by quite a big factor. So it's slower than a Node application, relatively speaking. Let's, let's, let's be really generous and say it's 10x slower, okay? So your hello world in Node is one millisecond. Your hello world in Rails is 10 milliseconds. That's nine milliseconds of difference, right? So much of a web application, if you've ever written one, is database interaction, up to 50%, I would say. And the other 50% comes from the language and the framework. So if really your 10x factor really makes your application, if it's only half of the work, it only makes it, what are we talking then, 5x faster? No, 2x faster, because the database work is the same. So maybe your Node application does the response in 100 milliseconds, my Rails application does it in 300. That's a 200 millisecond difference. In terms of front-end browser time, 200 milliseconds is like nothing. Like people ship these JavaScript bundles nowadays that are like 10 megabytes uncompressed. It takes like 10 seconds just to evaluate the JavaScript on the page. The extra 200 milliseconds that you got from your node response being faster is like not even like in the equation here. So the absolute differences in these frameworks and language choices in, you know, I don't even pick one, like PHP, Python, whatever, like languages that are even slower than Ruby. It's, it's fine. Like there's no big difference in terms of a web application, in terms of that context. The only context that does matter is like, well, you can scale a Node application cheaper than a Rails application because you need less hardware if the, if the uh, server's faster, which is like fair point. But like most people don't spend that much money on their servers anyway, especially compared to their developers. So if Rails makes your developers 10% faster, I think that's going to outweigh any you know scaling factor that you saved on EC2. Yeah, I think that it's been in a, I know I've been able to articulate it quite like that, but I think there has been a general, whenever people talk about Ruby, and you make a good point, it's slower, not slow. I think that's probably a good response for anyone in the community that hears that, stick with that. But in particular, with when you're having these conversations, I think it's always been like, well, what people have said, oh, wow, you're still working in Ruby on Rails after all these years, this isn't something better coming along? I'm like, well, I don't feel like I'm going to be more productive in that other platform as a developer. What am I getting out of it as a developer? Like, well, it's faster, the processing time. And I'm like, that was never the reason for it in the first place. Like, I found working with Ruby on Rails to be more delightful from a developer experience. And I think it's also had a big impact on the wider community and a lot of other frameworks kind of modeled similar behaviors and opinions and structure there based off of kind of what Ruby on Rails did. And so I think that's been better for the the wider ecosystem. So I think it's great that people have good options now and as well, but it's I still come back to like, what's my performance gain going to look like, and that was something that Rails was much faster at was my ramp up speed and my ability to jump into other projects. There's a lot of other factors that come into it. So, also within the Ruby on Rails world, do you believe that Active Record itself is a slow library? I think my opinions on this have sort of changed over the years. I think. It's not like Active Record is just this like pile of like unmaintained, unoptimized. Like there's not like I could just go in there for two weeks and just make everything better. There's not like just some massive backlog of Active Record inefficiency that needs to be taken care of. Really, really smart people have worked on Active Record for years at that kind of thing. And like this is where we're at. Okay. So the reason why it can introduce performance issues is because the API around like the active record pattern really in general is basically to let you treat the database as if it was just another object. You're calling, you know, users.posts, right? And like that just feels like, oh, you're just accessing a method on an object, but really like you're, you're calling to another table, right? Like you're kind of doing a join there, right? 
that pattern where you are acting as if the database was a Ruby object is an abstraction that will necessarily leak. Like that hat, that is not a tight abstraction. Like there's problems with that. Like, first of all, databases don't work like Ruby objects, which then second of all, like database is expensive and Ruby objects are very cheap. So active record kind of tricks developers into thinking that this is cheap when it's not. And that's why the number one performance issue in Rails is n plus ones. It's unnecessary SQL. Like 80% of the stuff I deal with every day is people using active record carelessly. Now you can argue, and I, I think I'm like starting to come more around to this argument, that's active records fault, that there should have been more guardrails, that there should have been more ways to prevent you from doing that kind of thing or to warn you or whatever. Or you can just argue like, yeah, that was your fault though. Like you should have fixed that. You need to know how to fix these things. And like the productivity you gain from the active records interface being so simple and so easy to use is worth that cost. I think that would that would probably be what DHH would tell you. So I'm kind of neutral, I guess, on this. Like I, I don't think it's a big enough problem that like I'm suddenly gonna tell everybody to move over to like some other Rails ORM. But yeah, I guess I, I'm kind of neutral on the question. All right. What are some common performance problems that you find yourself encountering when you're kind of looking at the full stack or when you're coming to a company is helping them is, you know, you touched on like JavaScript frameworks and the package that might be downloaded might be 10 megabytes or something. Have you seen that performance of Ruby on Rails applications or most applications is starting to slow down because of JavaScript frameworks at all? Yeah, totally. I mean, like you look at the first page load experience for basically any modern website and it's like five megabytes of stuff that has to get downloaded. Maybe they put the CSS and the JavaScript in the wrong order. The JavaScript is just a massive bundle or the web fonts are not properly optimized. Like there's a million things that can go wrong in front end page load. And I do think it's more confusing to developers because it's an asynchronous process. And no one that I've ever worked with could ever explain to me how the browser's parser blocks and when it blocks and for what reasons. And like, what does it take to build a web page? Like, I find that pretty much no front end developer can like tell you what that process is like, which I don't really blame anybody. Cause like the other thing that I deal with in my workshops is like, nobody knows in their Rails application, what lines of codes get executed to run, to build the entire response. Like from the beginning to the end, what does it take to build a Rails response, right? And like no Rails developer can tell you that until they've done this profiling work and they've seen the, the answer. So I don't, I'm not like ragging on front-end developers here. I'm just saying like, this is a very complicated process that can have a major impact on the user that most people don't seem to understand. Yeah, I think it's it's really just like understanding what it takes to render the web page, right? Like what do you have to build? You have to build a CSS object model. Like you have to build the DOM. What blocks the DOM? Things like that. How do you unblock the DOM? All this kind of stuff. It's not that complicated, I think, once you figure it out, but it does have such a huge impact. Page load times in the browser are like five seconds, six seconds, seven seconds. The back end times for most applications, even very poorly optimized ones, are 500 milliseconds or less. So that's really where the opportunity for improving customer experiences is, is in the front end. I have a course that's called The Complete Guide to Rails Performance, and one quarter of it talks about front end hmm. because I believe this so strongly. I often think about at least the, the Ruby on Rails community specifically, since I can I've been around for most of that. I remember when Rails first shipped, you know, it was kind of very coupled together with like prototype JavaScript framework. And then I felt like there was a little bit more emphasis on trying to keep JavaScript a little bit more tidy back then. And then 
when jQuery popped up, we were noticing that people just started like throwing in jQuery plugins into your applications. And then there was kind of like a, well, we're getting all these cool features out of this. And it's like, it looks great. And you get these cool little flashy things now, or we get this cool carousel, what have you, throwing these things into our applications. And then it, it just felt like all of a sudden that became less of a concern because like maybe bandwidth seemed like things were getting faster for most people's internet access. I'm generalizing that and saying that in the Western hemisphere, but as these other things like React and Ember and all these other frameworks popped up, it just seemed like, well, that's what other people are doing. Everybody's leaving jQuery to use these other things, so we'll do that. But I don't feel like there's people really taken like a close look at that and been like, well, how does this stuff all kind of fit together? What are we losing in terms of hopefully getting some efficiencies out of building some more rich interactive applications on the web? But there is like a trade-off from a performance perspective. And is that really that different than how we treat Ruby on Rails as in, in a similar way or but it's happening on the client side, which I think has been like the weird part of that equation where I feel like on the Ruby on Rails side, you know, things are happening on the server side. Like if we can get that as efficient as possible, then get it to the browser. But to have all that stuff kind of still take time, it's been interesting to see that transition over the years. And I feel like I don't understand how the DOM stuff works at all, to be honest. So I can understand. I don't think most of the people on my team do. I think it's all about measurement, Robbie. Like if the measurement for backend is like pretty good, Everyone knows, like you installed New Relic, right? And then that number is like right there, like, oh, it's 300 milliseconds. And then like people see that number go up and like, oh, that must be bad. The term of art is real user monitoring. So like the performance monitoring that's going on in the browser really didn't even exist until like, I don't know, four or five years ago. And then like has only really gotten good in the last like two years as the APIs in the browser have improved. People didn't even know, I think. No one had a way of like measuring this thing, you know? I think that's the reason why no one has paid attention until now, really. And I do think there's a little bit of like just sort of elitism in the community there where like, oh, if you're if my site is slow for you, it's just because you're on a crappy device, and I guess that's your fault somehow. You kind of did a little call out there to like the fact that bandwidth in the first world is very good. So I'm in Accra, Ghana, right now, and seeing the reality of like the dumb phones and low spec Android devices that like people actually use here on 3G or crappy two bar 4G connections is very eye opening. And you know, the web is not designed for these people, at least not the web outside of like Facebook and Google. So this is a lot of people coming online in the next 10, 20 years, billions, and they are not going to have the same specs as the kinds of devices that we develop stuff on. We'll be back with my interview with Nate in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to thank you for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these discussions valuable, please consider sharing it amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Go on. I'll wait. Also, should you be the type of person who has a plethora of great stories about improving the long-term maintainability of software and might like to share that with our audience? please get in touch with me at Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now back to our interview with Nate Brickelpeck. Stepping back out of the Ruby on Rails world a little bit more, what sort of challenges do you see within organizations on how they deal with performance problems? I'm assuming that a lot of the companies that you work with have some knowledge or idea that there are some performance problems so that they're somewhat aware of it. And then, you know, it's been my experience that there's probably a lot more companies that don't even know they have an issue. It's not on their, on their radar. So what sort of advice would you provide to people that are listening that 
maybe that fit in either camp, but maybe the ones that are like, that's not my responsibility. At least no one told me it's my responsibility as a software developer. What sort of advice would you give to them on like having a conversation internally or something? So two things, I think. One is you got to have a process. And two, you have to quantify the value of working on performance. So the process, you know, I think that's going to be very different for different teams. But I think most people should be working in a way where performance can be treated like a bug. So you set budgets and you say, all right, our load time today is this. And anything more than this, we are going to treat as a bug. You know, like if we have an endpoint that has an average response time or an app dex or whatever metric you want to put on it, that's more than X, we're going to put that into the bug tracker, right? That's going to go into our bug workflow. There's just like in 80% of teams that I work with, there's no way for performance to get into the development workflow that they use, Scrum or whatever, right? Like there's just, there's just no way to like put stuff in there aside from some saintly developer opening up New Relic and deciding there's a problem. There has to be a system for getting that stuff into the workflow. And I think different teams will work differently on that. Whatever works for you works, but like have something that will put this stuff in the workflow without thinking about it. Then the great thing about performance is it's actually very easy to quantify how valuable it is to work on. This is like awesome for me as a consultant. So first thing is making applications faster makes them cheaper to deploy. So if I can make an application twice as fast, I can reduce the amount of hardware needed to run it by 50%. So that's a fundamental result in queuing theory known as Little's Law. It just means that the amount of work in the system is equal to the average response time of the system times how quickly work comes in. So if I can make the thing twice as fast, I can reduce its load by half, which means you need half as much hardware and half as much cost, which is very easy to quantify in the day and age of EC2 and, and Heroku and stuff like that. So that's a great impact of performance work that you should be, especially at large organizations, when you get into like 10,000 requests per minute plus, it's very easy to see how that pays off. The other way that it pays off is in customer experience. So there's a great website, wpostats.com. It's web performance optimization stats.com, I guess that would be. So wpostats.com. And it's a bunch of research from different companies that has shown like the different impacts that their performance optimizations have had on their business. And it's a fairly robust result that if you can remove 100 milliseconds of load time from the browser, that you can get about a 1% increase in sales or revenue or conversion or whatever business metric you want to slap into there. So that's a pretty big difference for most companies. Or just bringing up user engagement, I encourage you to go look at that site and try to find a comparable company to your own. But if I could walk into a company and say, all right, I'm going to make this all your page loads one second faster, that's going to increase your sales by 10%. Like, great. Now we know how much this work is worth. So bring that into your own process so you know how much time it's worth to spend on this work. I think those are some good suggestions for how to integrate that. I like the idea of incorporating those is considering them basically bugs. It's like something's not working to the expectation and keeping the idea that not only is it not necessarily just a feature not working the way you expect it, but it's not performing at the speed that you're expecting to, I guess, is a way to think about that. Everybody has these requirements in their heads, right? We just don't ever write them down. The user story wasn't a user should be able to write a new post sometime this millennium. It was like <laughs> the user should be able to, to write a new post and it should feel like decent, right? You just need to define what that number is. That number will be different for different applications, but like you just got to write it down. 
When you're working with teams and, you know, you mentioned the tools like New Relic and, you know, you can go in there and find slowest transaction, things like that, or slowest database queries. Do you typically work with teams to start identifying those things first? Or do you recommend like looking at things that are probably going to be maybe more valuable, but maybe happen less often? It depends on the objective of the business. So like, for example, I think one common thing is users have two different classes. So like you might have the typical user and then you have like the admin. And usually in a B2B app, the admin is the one that pays the bills. So the admin has a very different experience usually to the user. All a little conditional logic that's like, oh, if user is an admin, show them all this additional stuff. Or like, they're the ones that get to look at all the index actions. Show me all the users, show me all the posts. That stuff is usually the slowest stuff in the app, right? Even though they don't make up a large percentage of the traffic, they make up a large percent of the importance of the business, and they also tend to experience the worst performance, right? So like, we might try to identify that and then work on those users first. You might have a different story in your app, but I think everybody kind of has those, has those stories. Then I like to look at 95th percentiles a lot. So the 95th percentile of a response time is saying that 95% of your requests are faster than this number and 5% are slower. So if the 95th percentile in your application is three seconds, that means that 95% of responses are faster than three seconds and 5% are slower. If you have an average user session length of 20 pages, so if a user uses your site for 20 pages and then logs off, one of those pages is probably going to be the 95th percentile or slower. So that's what people remember. They remember the one slow page. We have this great human psychology, like we remember the bad things more than we remember the good things. Performance is no exception to that. So bringing that sort of right tail down has its own value in the customer experience rather than just focusing on the averages and, and the most trafficked endpoints, which I do focus on as well because like it is the most common case, but doesn't mean we should ignore 95th percentiles or weird areas of the application only used by particular people. So in an ideal world, how often do you believe a development team should be focused on optimizing their existing code versus, say, building new code? I think you just got to sit down and decide how valuable each of those concerns is for the business. So like a new business has to grow and it has to become big enough to support itself for whatever its objectives are, right? Or like to keep the money coming before the next round of VC funding runs out. That's a hard stop, right? So like maintaining the existing revenue doesn't help. I have a pretty common thing where like being a kind of consultant that I am, I have people come in that are like, yeah, we've never looked at performance before and we're a successful business now, but like we weren't five years ago when we were wrote all this stuff and like now we're just looking at this for the first time. And like, I think that's perfectly fine. I don't think you need to like have this perfectly maintained performance perfect thing for all points of the life cycle, right? That's going to depend on the business case as it goes along. We write apps for a business. We don't write apps so that they are beautiful and perfect. You know, it just depends on where the business is at, where that trade-off will fall. That kind of speaks to like when should that start becoming a concern? And I think it depends probably for every organization and trying to make sure you keep the latency low on, you know, in your application or keep things running efficiently. But you can find teams that they hire really great talented developers early on in the life cycle for a new, say, MVP. They spend a lot of time optimizing that stuff for something that may never reach that product market fit. Was it worth that time? Who knows? 
I guess you could say that, well, we can't blame the, the performance of the application, but also maybe performance could be a big impact on those early users and be a reason why they don't use your product. There's probably not like a lot of clarity there for people to kind of run with, but like all things in the software world, it depends. So let's assume there's a developer out there with good intentions listening to this episode and, and is thinking to themselves, this all sounds great. I want to focus on performance. You know, I'm sort of talking about my team, but how can I get my peers to join me on this mission to keep our application's performance healthy? You know, you touched on deciding if this would be a priority in the organization. Do you feel like there's teams that need to, this becomes a responsibility of the whole team or individual people being the one that kind of lead the charge? Yeah. I mean, I think you have to quantify it. I think you have to quantify the impact. And I think you have to quantify where you're at. I have a lot of numbers that I tweet and I write about a lot where like I bucket Rails applications into different categories. So like for me, a Rails application should always be able to have an average response time of 300 milliseconds or less. So that's just my, based on experience, all your endpoints should be faster than that number. So if you've got a bunch of endpoints that are slower than that number, your whole app is slower than that number. It's like, oh God, something's wrong. It's kind of like a peer benchmarking. There used to be a thing in New Relic like way back in the day that let you benchmark your application against other people in your software vertical. They took that out eight years ago because nobody used it, I guess. But I liked it for that reason. So the other thing I think is just to quantify the value of what performance work can do for your organization. So like I already mentioned WPO stats. So like... Hey, you know, if we sat down and worked on one second, making our, our page loads one second faster than they are today, like I think it would have at least as good of an impact. Let's measure that and let's try it. Or learning the math behind and the queuing theory behind Little's Law and backends and like, oh, if we made our application 25% faster, it would save 25% on our server bills, which adds up to Y number. It's very easy to, to get an idea of like, should you be focusing on this or not? And so with that, I have a few last questions. What book do you find yourself most often recommending to software developers? I think it's two, but I, I stole them from DHH because he recommended these and I read them and agreed. <laughs> it's The Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture by Martin Fowler. That's a book all about the different patterns used in enterprise software. If you read it, you're like, oh man, Rails is like cribs like a quarter of these just great stuff for being able to pull from every day. I enjoy that book a lot. Martin Fowler is also just a really good writer. So second one would be Small Talk, Best Practice Patterns, I think is the title by Kent Beck, the one with the bees on the front. That book was kind of my first introduction for writing beautiful object-oriented software. And I think it's still one of the best. I mean, yes, like no one writes Small Talk anymore, but like it's pretty easy to translate it into any OO language that you can think of. And it just really got me in the mindset of writing good OO software. And it kind of gave me, again, it is also like organized as a list of patterns. So it kind of gave me some things to like put in the quiver. So like I know how to write a value object. I, I thought that book was great for sort of like a basic intro to, to very low level, like tactical OO stuff. That's great. And yeah, I remember Patterns of Enterprise Architecture being a pretty awesome book when I first came across as well. With In particular, I remember that's where Active Record came from. Good book to recommend there. And where can people learn more about you and your consulting business online? My website is www.speedshop.co. And that's a link to blog, my course, pretty much everything that I do. And are you primarily focused on Ruby on Rails at this point in time? Or are you branching off into any other languages at this point? 
Yeah, I do all rails. All rails 24-7. Excellent. So, yeah, that's all I do. Well, it's been such a treat having you on Maintainable, Nate. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks again, Robbie. Oh, 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 oh.